to even suggest that we can understand God can seem to be perhaps both the height of arrogance. How could we even dare to suggest we can understand God? And at the same time, perhaps, it might seem to be the most fruitless quest. How on earth could we or can we even begin to understand God? Well, it's a quest for us that has been made possible. It's a quest that's been invited. Because God himself has chosen to reveal himself to us. If we have the heart and the faith for it, we can see him in his creation. But of course, he's also given us this wonderful book, the Bible. God's holy scriptures. And here on every single page, God has revealed himself, made himself known to us. Of course, one of the things that is recorded in this wonderful book is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that supreme revelation of God that we might know him. The reason that Jesus came into the world is so that sinners might be reconciled to to their God, that we might know God once more and to some degree begin to understand him. Now, of course, our knowledge and understanding of God, even after a lifetime of study, will be very small compared to all that may be known of God. But surely... We want to pour over every page of the Bible to discover what what might be learned here. What can I see of God here? What has God chosen to show me of himself here on this page of his Bible? And they're the kinds of questions that we've been asking as we've been making our way through these Old Testament accounts of the life of Elisha. Above everything else, what is God revealing here of himself to me? What can I know about God more? What can I, how can I be the richer for having spent time in this part of God's word? And so we ask those questions as we come to this uh, chapter in 2 Kings, chapter 8. And to see certain wonderful truths that God has chosen to reveal to us of himself in his word. Well, with the chapter open, I want to break it down into three sections. They're not equal in length. Um, The first is the, the opening two verses. And we have to remember that Elisha, of course, is God's spokesman in the land of Israel. And he is the one who is bringing God's truth Um, Elisha is being used by God to reveal God to Israel, um, to remind them of things they've already known, things that they've chosen to forget, things that they've chosen to turn their backs on. And and God is speaking uh, to the people in various ways through his prophets in the Old Testament. And, And when we 
look at the lives of these prophets and as we hear their words and the things that they're saying, uh, we, we recognize that very often when they speak, uh, before they speak, they, they actually say, thus says the Lord, this is God speaking. And so we're actually listening to the voice of God through these men. And so we're actually getting an insight into God himself through these men in the Old Testament scriptures. And in the opening two verses, we see kindness remembered and returned. Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. This is the woman of Shunem from back in chapter 4. She was that lady who built Elisha a guest room in her home for his exclusive use. Whenever he was in the area, he had a place that he could call his own, a bed where he could rest, a table and a chair, food. This is the woman whose son very suddenly and unexpectedly took ill out in the fields and died. This is the woman who took the body, the lifeless body of her son and laid it in that room on Elisha's bed and called for someone to find Elisha. This is the woman whose son was miraculously brought back to life by God through the work of his prophet Elisha. Elisha knows because God has revealed it to him and made it known to him, Elisha knows that there is a seven-year famine approaching in Israel. And he remembers this woman's kindness. And he's compelled to give her due warning and encourages her to move her family to a region that the famine will not reach. And interestingly, she decides to move to the land of the Philistines. That's a coastal region in southern Palestine, which today includes that area that is often in our news headlines, the Gaza Strip. The Philistines, of course, are a pagan nation. They're the long-standing enemy of Israel. But the famine won't hit them. Why will the famine hit Israel and not their sworn enemy who are a pagan nation? Because this famine is God's judgment against a wicked and unrepentant Israel. What do we learn about God in these verses? Well, we learn about his common grace. The Philistines will not have famine. It's God's common grace in the world. The Shunammite woman will be spared the effects of the famine. It's God's grace in the world. We see that this woman's kindness towards the Lord's prophet has not been forgotten or overlooked. And she herself receives this great kindness in return. And God demonstrates here that he deals with people with equity and in grace. We learn about God's dealings with his own people, that he brings judgment and correction 
Why is God doing this? Well, God, to use modern language, he wants to snap them into their spiritual senses again. And of course, his great desire is to restore them to himself. He wants to bring them to repentance. And he brings these things against them. Why? So that they might see and realize at last the error of their ways. This is because we've sinned against the Lord. This is because we've turned our backs against him that God is doing this. Let us return to the Lord in repentance. That's why this is being brought. Because God loves them. We read, don't we, in the New Testament scriptures in Hebrews that God chastises those whom he loves because he wants to restore them again. God loves Israel and he longs that they would return to him. But God can't sit there and wink at sin as if it's of no consequence. And he doesn't just sit there idly twiddling his thumbs, impotent to do anything. God is actively involved in the life of his people, even in bringing famine against them. And even in these uh, difficult things for us to understand, we see God acting for his own glory in the world. But we see, don't we, such grace even then in the mind of God and in the things that he does and in his dealings in the world. Much to learn about the Lord our God. This God is the God of life and death. It's a sobering thought. It's a thought that the world uh, would rather not think. It's something that the world would rather not spend its time contemplating. But our, our lives are in the hand of this God of the scriptures. Your life is in the hand of this God of the scriptures. A God who brings judgment and condemnation against sin. But a God of grace who offers mercy. Well, those two verses might seem almost inconsequential in many ways as you're reading through, but even there we see God's hand mightily and powerfully at work. And then as the story continues, we see that very quickly, um, from verse 2 to verse 3, seven years have passed and the woman returns. And we have in this next few verses testimony powerful yet shrugged off it's a remarkable thing in verses three to six so at the end of the seven-year famine in verse three the woman returns from philistia and she goes to make this appeal to the king and then in verse four we find gehazi mentioned and uh, you might think, hang on a minute. This Gehazi, this is the man who at the end of chapter 5 was struck down with leprosy. Uh, how come he's appearing back now in chapter 8? What's going on here? Well, it's a good question to ask. And it's a question that's been asked by many of the Bible commentators over the, over the years. 
And the very simple answer that they're all agreed upon is that we assume that these historical books are written in strict chronological order. But that isn't always the case. If you were to choose any period in history and go into the central library and grab half a dozen books that all address that same period of history, you could easily find six authors who address writing about that era in very, very different ways. They might all have a different point of emphasis that they want to highlight. They might be writing about that piece of history from a certain viewpoint. There might be certain topics and themes that they wish to emphasise. And so they may write about that piece of history chronologically, year by year by year, or they might write about that piece of history by theme and topic. And so very often in some of these Old Testament books, and it's widely agreed that this is the case here in 2 Kings, that what is recorded for us is not strictly in chronological order, but is written in such a way as to reveal certain things about how God is at work amongst his people. And so the fact that the events of chapter 8 may well have taken place before the events of chapter 5 it, it is not a great slur against the Bible to say that it's a book that can be discarded and rubbished because there is this apparent inconsistency within its pages. There are many different ways of writing and recording history rather than simply taking you through day after day, week after week, month after month. And the Bible often focuses on theological themes and patterns and follows those through the accounts that it has. So the fact that Gehazi is suddenly mentioned again in chapter 8 after he contracted leprosy at the end of chapter 5 in itself is not something that need disturb us or cause grave concern. So the woman returns from Philistia and in her absence for those seven years, the land that she owned would have legally been turned over to the crown. That was the law. And now that she's back, she can go and claim it. And that's what she's doing. So we, we have in verse three where the woman is, she's on her way back from uh, the land of the Philistines and her intent as soon as she gets back home is to go and see the king and get her land back but while that's still happening at verse 4 before she arrives the king has started to have this conversation with Gehazi Elisha's servant and the king and we understand it's King Jehoram He's inquiring about Elisha and he asks Gehazi to tell him about his master. Tell me all the great things he's done. Well, there's no shortage of material. And so Gehazi begins to recount all the things that he's witnessed in the ministry of Elisha. And then they have one of those great, we were just talking about you moments just at the very point where Gehazi 
is telling the king about what happened to the Shunammite woman and how her son died and where she laid him on the bed that Elisha had been using and how Elisha was able to bring that boy back to life just at that very part of the story in walks the woman. Well, and of course Gehazi sees her. Hey, hang on a minute, king. There she is. This is the very woman I've just been telling you about. That's the boy. He was dead. I saw him dead with my own eyes. And look, he lives. Now it seems at this point that the king is quite stirred by what he's heard and by the arrival of the woman. It's hard not to be stirred by such an account, isn't it, really? And he has absolutely no issue with restoring back to her the land and the home that was hers. We see that there in verse 6. And uh, not only will she get her land back, all the income that it's been generating while she's been away will also be given to her. That's good, isn't it? That's very generous. Uh, And he gets one of his officials to sort out all the paperwork. Well, the kings don't do things like that, do they? Uh, You there, sort it. Make it happen. Wonderful. And here's the king. I say, we understand this is Jehoram. Uh, and he's heard all of these wonderful things that this man of God has been able to do. Here is the power of God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of his ancestors. Look at what God has been able to do through this man. Here's the woman. Here's the living proof and evidence of everything that God has done. But what do we read about King Jehoram in chapter 3? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not like his father and mother. He put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father has made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Isn't it remarkable? It's a wonderful testimony. It's a powerful testimony. But it's not enough to change a man's heart. Isn't it remarkable? Such a thing as that. He's been fascinated by everything that he hears. But it's only fascination It isn't faith. We need to be careful that we don't simply fascinate people with the gospel or about the gospel. We don't want people only to be fascinated. We want them to come to faith in Christ. Now, Testimony of what God has done is very important. It has a very important place in the Bible. But you know, I want to suggest to you that the most important aspect of testimony 
is that it gives to the Lord the glory that is due his name. That's the most important aspect of testimony. Because testimony says, it's not me, it's him. Testimony points to the Lord God. Testimony points to Christ. Testimony points away from humanity and upwards to divinity. Testimony says it's all of God and it's not of me. The sinful world in which we live has no care to do this, of course. It has no time to consider all of God's marvellous benefits. So, for example, I don't recommend you do this, but if, if you sat in McDonald's for a week, some of them are 24 hours now, aren't they? Sit in McDonald's for a week in the corner and count how many people during the course of that week pause to give God thanks for his provision before they eat. I doubt if you would see one in a whole week. The world has no concern to testify of God's goodness, to recognise God's provision. Not interested in those things. So for believers to tell of what God has done is very important because in a world that's obsessed with man's achievements, in a world that is obsessed only with pointing to ourselves instead of to the Lord, for us to declare all that God has done is very important and it's a very significant thing to do. To give glory to God, to give the glory that is due his name to give God his rightful place is a very significant thing that's done in personal testimony. Having said that though, even the most remarkable testimony is not enough to change a cold and stony heart. Now it's true, God may choose to use testimony as he is doing that, but it's he who brings the change in the heart. Being able to tell a great story in itself can change no one. You'll go a long way to find a testimony to match the testimony of this woman and of the story that Gehazi could tell. But Jehoram, though fascinated in his heart, spiritually remained unmoved and unsaved. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, early in his preaching ministry, 1941, early-ish, he was preaching at the InterVarsity Fellowship Meeting at Trinity College, Cambridge. At the end of the meeting, after Lloyd-Jones had spoken the master of Trinity College, a man by the name of Trevelyan, came up to him and said, it has been given to you to speak with great power. But Trevelyan went to his grave as an unbeliever. He was impressed with the oratory, perhaps. 
impressed with the way that Lloyd-Jones could reason through the things of God and the things of the Word. But even a, even a man like him with such great oratorial skills, those things on their own are never going to save anybody. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis says this, being charmed by the truth is not the same as being converted by the truth. And it's only God who converts. And it's only God who saves. It's only God who can work in a cold, stony heart and bring life. Having a better story, having a better storyteller won't achieve that which belongs to God alone. Only God, by his spirit, can convict a man of his sin and convince him of the truth. It was an amazing testimony. It was a powerful testimony. It gave glory to God, but it couldn't save the king. And then the final thing in this passage is judgment with tears. Judgment with tears. From verse 7. Elisha has gone to the Syrian capital of Damascus. We're not told why. Although we can tell as we read on the story. It's a, it's a divine appointment that Elisha is keeping there. As he has this meeting. The king in Damascus is Ben-Hadad. He's seriously ill. He believes he's going to die. And interestingly, he sends to Israel's prophet to ask what the outcome is going to be. And he sends uh, this vast load of gifts. Um, of course, they didn't have Amazon back then, so it was camels instead. One camel can carry quite a load, I think. 40 camel loads, that's a significant amount. That's like a HGV turning up at your door full. And uh, uh, the king, of course, in, uh, in Syria believes that, well, if I'm going to get any kind of favour from the king of Israel, I've got to pay him right. Such is the way of the world. And interestingly, the king of Syria does what the king of Israel should have done, but doesn't. He inquires of the man of God. The king of Israel hasn't done that. And interestingly, the king of Syria does. And... The, the question is put to Elisha, what, what's going to happen to the king? Will the king recover or will he die? Uh, and verse 10, Elisha says something which at first seems a little bit strange. You shall recover, however you, were, you will really die. Oh, hang on, come on. You're just playing games with me now, Elisha. No, he's not. Uh, what Elisha is saying is that in the normal course of events, you would recover from this illness. But you are going to die. But it's not the illness that's going to kill you. The illness isn't the problem. Something else is. So ordinarily you would live. But something else is about to happen. And after that has happened, in verse 11, Elisha just stands staring at Hazael, the messenger of the king. 
and he stands and he stares at him. And the tears begin to roll down Elisha's face. And he stands before Hazael and he weeps. And he weeps. And he weeps. Why is Elisha weeping? Elisha's tears are the tears of God. Judgment is coming upon Israel. But it's judgment with tears. Hazael is not the king, but he will be. Hazael is going to lead the army against Israel. We won't repeat the words, but they are going to do abominable things in Israel. And Elisha knows what's coming. And he weeps. Ladies and gentlemen, do not miss the point. God's judgment comes with tears. Hazael and Syria are going to be used as God's instrument of judgment against unrepentant Israel. But it comes with tears. Hazael, as you saw in the story, he'll return to Ben-Hadad. He'll give the king Elisha's reply. And the very next day, Hazael himself will assassinate Ben-Hadad and will become the king. But Elisha weeps. Centuries later, the Lord Jesus Christ will be stood on a hillside and in front of him is Jerusalem. And virtually every man and woman in Jerusalem has rejected him and has remained in their unbelief. They've seen and heard remarkable testimony. They've seen and heard of the dead raised to life. And just like Jehoram, they remain in unbelief too. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. And Christ's heart is broken over unrepentant Jerusalem. Judgment is coming against Jerusalem, but it's judgment with tears. I remember reading a story of two preachers. Memory serves me right, it was McShane and Bona. What have you been preaching about this morning? I've been preaching about hell and judgment. I hope you preached it with tears, my friend. With tears. Boner himself, Andrew Boner, said this, the shower of fire and brimstone is wet with the tears of God as it falls. <coughs> For God has no pleasure in the death of him that dies. The judgment of God is mingled with God's tears. This God who's made himself known in the scriptures, this God who we can begin to understand through the scriptures, as we saw last week, he's the God of judgment and he's the God of grace. He's the God of death, but he's also the God of life. And one day judgment is coming. It's judgment with tears. 
God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and the judgment that comes against them. But judge them he must, otherwise he would cease to be the all-righteous God. But there is grace and there is life. And it's offered freely. We saw last week in the story that the grace that God would bring would arrive in Israel the very next day after that event that happened with the lepers who found all the provisions. The army had run away and they found it all the very next day. The grace of God was made available to all the people in Samaria. God's grace is very near. You know, you don't even have to wait till tomorrow to know God's grace. Today is the day of salvation. This God who's revealed himself in his word is the God of judgment and grace. He's the God of death, but he's also the God of life. And he offers it freely through this Lord Jesus of whom we've been singing this evening. The one who came to take our sins, to bear our sorrows and our punishment at Calvary, that we might be set free, that the curse might be lifted, that we might have the condemnation that's upon us removed and removed for all eternity. Know him and love him. Even here in the Old Testament scriptures, as, with, as judgment approaches for Israel, we see that it's judgment with tears. Because God is the God of all mercy and kindness and grace. And he's provided a way of escape through repenting of your sins, turning from them, and putting all your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might know his grace, that you might have his life for which he sent his son.